0: I'm out on vacation this week, so the episode you're about to hear was recorded earlier. It's a great episode, so stay tuned. In the run-up to any modern presidential election, assessing a candidate's successes and failures have served as fodder for political pundits, for analysts, for campaign advisors. And in part, those assessments of who's winning and which messages are working are drawn from a whole sprawling effort designed to take the pulse of the American voter. That effort is political polling. These days, there are public polls, private polls, polling shops out of news organizations, universities, research centers. There's also internal polling specifically conducted for candidates with a stake in a given race. Each kind of poll serves a different purpose and often a different audience. But they share in common their efforts to learn more about how Americans make choices, on what issues to value, what causes to believe in, and which candidates to support. Reporting shows that President Trump has been watching polls closely as the November election nears. And at this point, things are not looking great for Trump, who trails Biden in most national polls. Trump's team has argued that many polls that show a Biden lead are skewed, that a silent majority of voters will turn out for him in the fall, and that 2020 polling is just a repeat of 2016 polling, which showed Hillary Clinton leading nationally. Of course, as 2016 showed, polls aren't perfect, and the ways they are interpreted can also present problems, but they remain critical to the American electoral process. So in this episode, we're going to look at all the intricacies that go into conducting and interpreting polls during election season. How exactly can these surveys be representative of an entire electorate, and ultimately how much meaning should we draw from them? Should polls be considered predictive of how a country will eventually vote? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Alison Michaels. As a news organization, The Washington Post uses the findings from reputable polls to inform our reporting. We also conduct our own polls to gain better insight into the sentiments of the country. We have a team of two pollsters here at The Post who make all of this possible. Emily Guskin...
1: Almost everything that goes into putting a poll out, I get to have at least one hand in, and that's from writing questions, to analyzing data, to helping reporters with their polling questions, to finding good polling sources, and anything else that has to do with polling. And Scott
0: Clement.
2: I'm the polling director at The Washington Post. So I help lead our operation on what polls we conduct, when we conduct them, and analyzing results for stories that we produce.
0: I turn to Scott and Emily for answers about both the basics of polling and some of the more complicated pieces. All right, so let's start with the most fundamental question here, and I'll direct this to you, Scott. What are the goals of political polling in this country? Why do we have polls?
2: So there are many reasons we have polls in this country. Principally for us, it's to report accurately on what Americans think about major issues in the news, major Policy questions facing lawmakers, but also just uh, major attitudes that shape our world. That's newsworthy to us, and that's our primary purpose for conducting polls. Polls are most notorious and commonly seen in election contexts. They're sort of a score that people keep, really, as things are going to gauge who is winning and losing, but they are also used by political campaigns to help inform how they communicate with voters. And they're used in a variety of other things. Polls generally refer to opinion polls, but surveys broadly, are used to measure all kinds of important things for society. The unemployment rate comes from a major survey by the federal government, but we've also seen many surveys over recent months tracking how people are experiencing the coronavirus outbreak, what they're doing, how concerned they are, whether they've experienced sickness, things of that sort. So surveys broadly run the gimmick.
0: Can you get more specific about the different kinds of political polling that we see. You have public polls, private polls, polling shops out of news organizations like ours, universities, research centers, and then there's polling specific for internal inside campaigns. Can you just explain the different types of political polls that exist and what their findings are typically used for.
2: There are national polls, which are aimed at engaging the mood of the nation, support for political leaders and as well as Congress. There are also state and congressional district polls that are gaining a sense of what voters think at that level. The other producers of polls can really be informative about what a poll is trying to do. If a poll is done by a political campaign, it's sponsored in order to help that campaign, either figure out their strategy or to establish their level of support decide where they want to spend resources, things like that. Universities, nonprofits have different reasons for releasing polls. Some is just to investigate what voters are thinking and where things are in a campaign. And then news media organizations uh, like ours, we conduct polls regularly throughout the year, whether election season or not, to get a sense of what people think on major issues. But during election years, we're really interested in what voters are doing, what they're thinking, how they're deciding.
0: So should each of these types of polls be interpreted in the same way by the public or differently?
2: You need to approach every poll being mindful of who produced it and also its overall goals. It's not necessarily that a poll is done to find a particular result, which is sometimes the accusation. It's just that that's what it's likely to focus on, those particular issues that mattered to um, the sponsor. So in, in general, what we see is the kind of polls people most focus on are questions about election support for candidates, approval approval of political leaders. And the biggest thing is comparability. If you're interested in looking at attitudes over time, you're going to want to look at similar polls that are conducted over a longer time period. If you're interested in really getting a handle on where a candidate's support is, you might want to look at multiple surveys and see what they're saying to see the range. And if you want to delve into the attitudes of various small groups in a population, you want to ensure that the sample is large enough to be able to do that reliably.
0: So we've seen lots of presidential polls ramping up recently as the November election gets closer. Emily, how does The Washington Post decide what kinds of polls we use in our reporting?
1: We have a series of qualities that we look for in certain polls to ensure that they meet newsroom standards. There are several polls that we see time and time again that we report on. And you'll recognize a lot of those common polls in our reporting that we cite Frequently, and then there 's other new ones that pop up a lot in election years, and we go through a process to look at them,
2: yeah, so the first thing that we do whenever we counter a poll that we 'd like to cite. In a news story is we try to figure out how it was conducted. Uh, we try to figure out how the sample was drawn, how the questions were asked, and how the sample was weighted to match some population estimate and we also consider the source and who paid for the poll because that can often be an important indicator of its goals and the reasons for which it was released. So we evaluate all of that information if we get information from the sponsors of the poll about how it was conducted, that's a first sign, so we really demand transparency from polls. We are very transparent with our own polls, and we think that in order to be taken as credible, you really have to disclose how your survey was conducted. The basic question we're considering is whether the poll is conducted in a way that we can consider it as representative of a broader population. We don't care about a sample of 1,000 people or 2,000 people per se. Those people only matter insofar as they can be representative of the overall population. So if a sample uses a methodology that is not effective in representing the broader population, we don't want to share that with readers.
0: So to that point, is there any sort of body or agency that oversees integrity in polling? Does an organization need to meet a certain set of standards to even conduct or or publish a poll?
2: Not really. There are organizations that insist and encourage transparency for mostly the American Association for Public Opinion Research. They set out the kinds of things that every poll should have to disclose when it's reported. And some polls do that. They may belong to the transparency initiative of the organization, which means that they have been certified as disclosing all the essential elements. That doesn't mean it was conducted at a high quality. You could disclose that you did a really low quality job drawing a sample or something like that. But nonetheless, transparency is really important.
1: The organization that Scott mentioned goes by APOR, and it's the largest organization of different public opinion researchers. And there's members from uh, media pollsters like us and academic pollsters and even campaign pollsters as well. And not everyone who's a member of APOR is necessarily a member of the transparency initiative.
0: So, how does your team decide when to conduct a poll? What kinds of moments are you looking for? And how much planning really goes into identifying the moment that we'll conduct the poll?
1: We have a lot of conversations with editors and are polling partners. So we work with different organizations. When we ask questions, most of the time we're not doing it on our own. Sometimes we do. And we look at what's happening in the news and there's a lot happening in the news. So we never have a shortage of topics to ask about. If we're doing a national survey of Americans overall, we'll ask issues that are important to Americans nationally.
0: And how quickly can a poll respond to the news? So if some major moment in American politics happens, the president says something, say, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden says something. How soon can we begin polling Americans about it? As
2: quickly as you want, but there are limitations. Polls were fielded in the immediate wake of the September 2001 terrorist attacks to capture Americans' reactions. We've done polling in the immediate aftermath of other major events. The drawbacks are that it's harder to get a good quality sample of Americans to respond to a survey on very short notice. Surveys have gotten faster with the advent of technology, internet-based surveys. Phone surveys can still be done very quickly, but more often you're talking about having to wait a week, two weeks, sometimes even longer to really get a sense for whether an event has changed attitudes. And Uh, It can be a high bar because sometimes attitudes can change in the short term in reaction to an event, but might change further or revert back to where they were later than that. So it really is important for polls to not just be there in the immediate wake of events, but also to be done continuously on issues to track where Americans' attitudes change.
1: And one thing to add is that people aren't necessarily in the same news bubble that we're in. So when we hear about something and want public reaction to it immediately, a lot of times many Americans haven't even initially heard of that event
0: and asking them their opinion on it can be a bit fraught. Now we've talked about how there are trustworthy polls and less trustworthy polls. Can you walk me through the way a good survey is conducted? Your team conducts surveys, so let's just use your process as a guide. How does that process work?
2: Well, the first step is to decide when you want to conduct the survey. That matters a lot because if you're trying to chase and measure attitudes reacting to an immediate news event, you need to move very quickly. Uh, You have to develop a questionnaire very quickly after that, and you have to draw a random sample from whatever means you can. The questionnaire development process can be short or long, depending on those time constraints. Sometimes you have a couple months. And then that's really uh, you know what goes into a survey's timing it also may survey may be conducted to align with certain news events when you publish but most of the time when you're dealing with time constraints you're trying to ensure that the poll still is relevant in the news when you have results
1: and one thing that we spend a lot of time on is question wording and a lot of times we use the database of questions that we have asked before, because that way we can compare the results to a new poll to a previous finding, and that there's value in that to see if opinion has evolved. But also we write new questions, because new things happen all of the time. And the wording matters a lot, so we spend a lot of time ensuring that not only is the question balanced and fairly worded, but also that it's easily understandable by people. If we use a lot of jargon and detail that is unfamiliar to people who would be answering the question, then we won't get results that make any sense or that are useful. So we go back and forth a lot on questionnaire design with each other and with our poll partners to ensure that the questions are great. So question wording is Take some time. It's a process, but it's a really fun one. I think polling is both an art and a science, and this part is the artistic creative part a lot of the times.
0: Okay, so at this point in the process, you've decided to conduct a survey, you've thought about questions. How do you then find a representative sample? What needs to happen so that the body of people that you talk to actually represents the American people as a whole?
2: So the classic method is to draw a systematic random sample of any population you're trying to represent. This method was developed in the early to mid uh, 20th century. It's what really is the source of reliability for all statistics and federal surveys. And how we go about it these days, there are a couple different ways. One, with some of our national surveys with ABC News, we start with a random sample of all potential cell phone and landline numbers in the United States. We draw 75% of our sample from cell phones and 25% from landlines. More than 90% of Americans have a cell phone. People are using fewer landlines these days, so that's the reason for calling many more cell phones. Then, that has the ability so that everybody who has a phone in the United States has a potential for being called. That's really important uh, in ensuring our samples are representative. We hire a firm that conducts surveys. Apt Associates is one of our major firms. They hire professional interviewers and train them to dial these numbers and administer a standardized questionnaire in exactly the same way and including everything down to the pronunciation of candidates' names.
0: What percentage of the American public actually picks up these calls and is willing to engage with a pollster on the phone? Does it skew older? How do pollsters sort of go about getting people to talk to them on the phone?
2: A distinct minority of Americans uh, are willing to answer a telephone survey when asked. This doesn't mean that they're always unwilling or that they're always going to refuse a survey, but response rates tend to be fairly low. We're talking below 20 percent, sometimes even below 10 percent. One issue and quality of surveys relating to response rate is whether those who answer surveys are different from those who don't answer surveys. And Pretty much some share of every group answers surveys. It's just they may answer at some different rates. Interestingly, with landlines, you find that women are more likely to pick up the phone than men. That can be the opposite with cell phones. So what you have to do is go out and draw the very best random sample you can at the beginning of the survey process, but once all of the interviews are completed, we also have a series of weighting procedures that are designed to bring the sample in line with the population. We rely on Census Bureau statistics, so our samples are weighted by gender, race and ethnicity, region, education and age. That helps to bring results into line with what the overall population thinks. That procedure is a best practice in the industry. It's been proven to help make results more accurate. And it's it also is sensible. The goal is to represent the country overall, not the people we were just able to reach. So that helps to do that is ensure those groups are accurately represented.
0: Given all the factors that you've laid out, polls have something called margins of error. Can you explain what the margin of error accounts for and how it's used? So
1: error margins are really the only way we can actually measure error in a poll. There's all sorts of error, but sampling error is one we can measure. So it's a really great tool that we have. And it's based off of the number of people who are interviewed and in an average poll of about a thousand Americans, you'll generally see an error margin of plus or minus 3.5 percentage points. That means that we aren't exactly sure that that number is really right where we are based on sampling error. And it could be about 3.5 points higher than it, or 3.5 points lower than it. It shows that when you're comparing two numbers, sometimes if they're close enough, there isn't really a significant difference between those two numbers. When you've got a sample size that is around 1,000, that's usually, your margin of error is usually plus or minus 3.5 percentage points. But as you get smaller, your error margin will grow. So if you're looking at a subsample, let's say, Asian Americans, and it's a smaller group in the population, your margin of error could grow a lot because the sample will be about maybe 100 people. So your error margin is going to grow as your sample size goes down.
2: The margin of sampling error is both a caution in reading results, and it's also a demonstration of the value of sampling in surveys. And that the sampling theory says that if we went out and did a survey of a thousand people a hundred times over that in 95 of those surveys, the result would fall within three or three and a half percentage points of that result. And That's really remarkable, and that that applies no matter how large the population is. If it's a population of 100,000 people, if it's a population of more than 300 million people, sampling theory applies in similar ways. So it means that surveys of a random sample of Americans are a very efficient way at getting a pretty good estimate of what people think. Now, sometimes... You want to know information at a much greater level of precision. In a very close election, a margin of error of three percentage points can seem really big. That's a situation where it's just important to be comfortable with uncertainty and that there's only so much that polls can tell us. They're not precise instruments at measuring what the population thinks. They're a source of fairly accurate estimates, and they've proven fairly accurate over time in ways that we would expect
0: So are there dangers in averaging polls together or aggregating polls to tell a larger story?
2: It all depends on what you're trying to do. The main danger in averaging surveys or where things like that can go wrong are when surveys differed so much in their methodologies that they're incomparable. Either they ask different questions or the samples were drawn from such different sources, or in a more worrisome scenario, the samples from some of them were drawn from really good quality sources and done at a high quality, and others were done very poorly. In that case, you're mixing very good quality data with very low quality data. You may think that you can sort that out and some try to do that, but it can be difficult. And our general method is to rely on surveys that have shown the ability to prove representative
1: And even if you don't average polls, I think there's a lot of value in looking at similar questions from different polls because they're sometimes outliers. So if you see a similar question, and we talked earlier about question wording and how important that is, and sometimes different pollsters word things differently and can get pretty different results. And it's a good way to understand an issue from a broader level. So if three different pollsters ask a question and two of them ask it the exact same way, but different weeks. You can notice that maybe something happened in that intervening week or two asked it and included a different word. One called it the coronavirus and one called it COVID-19. And you learn something about what people maybe know about the wording.
0: How much faith should be put in polls that try to predict the outcome of presidential elections? What lessons have we learned from 2016 specifically and, and what's been corrected?
2: Readers should not take polls as a direct prediction of an election outcome. Uh, especially further away. But even close to them, there are reasons why pre-election polls may not match up with how people vote. Uh, Some of those are reasons of polling accuracy and whether they're getting election samples accurately or samples of voters accurately. Um, But the other is just inherent unpredictability in what voters are going to do. The population of likely voters in any given election doesn't ever exist at one point in time. They used to exist all on election day. Now it exists partly on election day when people go to vote and partly when they choose to mail in a ballot. And pollsters are chasing that moving target, trying to reach this representative sample of voters. But it's always chasing an ideal that's sort of unattainable. And that's not even mentioning the level of sampling error that is involved in surveys regularly. So it's really important to take polls as a pretty good estimate and not expect much more out of them.
1: And people change their mind. I think a lot of people who are paying a lot of attention to the news are pretty locked in, but not everyone is. And they change their mind. And in 2016, lots of people made decisions on who they were going to vote for in the last two weeks before the election. And also... About 2016, the polls were not far off. The average national polls were about as close as they've ever been to a presidential election. We did notice that some polls in states in the Midwest were more off than others. And a lot of the reason for that was because they didn't wait to education. But national polling in 2016 was historically more accurate than it had been in a while.
2: I think that's totally right. But I want to be upfront that historically state-level polls have been consistently less accurate than national polls. 2016 was a poor year for state polls. And while we understand some of the reasons for that, some of those are just inherent in state polling. And in close elections at the presidential level, it's really the battleground states that matter the most. And so we have less precise tools in places that matter the most, which means that things are just generally less certain. But it's important to remember that at the base level, these are still based on rough estimate surveys. And they can be off a little bit in one direction or another. And they can be off consistently in a given election, meaning that they could underestimate one candidate consistently across multiple states. So as we get close, it's really important to keep in mind that that margin of sampling error is real. And it really does take away from how much we can be confident in the way an election is going to go, no matter where what the polls say
1: just to to send it home. Polls are not predictors.
0: And if polls are not predictors, then what's the value in capturing just a moment in time if it's not representative of a longer term sentiment or the bigger picture in some way?
1: It's important to know what people are thinking and to see how elections evolve. And the horse race isn't the only thing that matters. There's issues out there that we want to measure opinions on important policies to see how those have evolved over time as well are really important. I always find it kind of endearing when uh, people respond to me, well, duh, when we release a finding that they think is obvious. But we wouldn't know it was obvious if we didn't have public opinion polling. So knowing what people are thinking about important issues is really vital. And it can be vital for Extremely important things. Policy, definitely, but public health. Right now we're in a public health crisis. And if we have data on whether or not people are wearing masks when they leave the house, that's an important thing to understand. What people are doing, how they're reacting to things that are happening in the news that affect their health, their livelihood, the economy, all sorts of really important vital issues.
0: Okay, so with all of that context about how polling works and how to think about it, let's wrap this by talking about what we're seeing in the latest presidential polls.
2: Polls in the last month or so have shown Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, with a roughly 10 percentage point advantage over Donald Trump in national polls, as well as advantages in several of the key states that were important in electing Trump. Smaller advantages, but still significant advantages between four, six percentage points in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, even Arizona. So... What that tells us is that if the election were held today, Trump would be a serious underdog in going into this. And one of the things that is also interesting is because many of these polls were conducted over many months, you know, previously by the same producers, that Trump's election position has worsened as a couple things have happened. It's worsened since uh, the coronavirus outbreak began, at which other polls show us that his approval ratings for handling it have declined. But it also shows us that. Uh, majority of Americans disapprove of his response to protest after George Floyd's killing. And so he's facing uh, public disapproval on two big issues that Americans have been focused on, and that's informing some of the margins that he's facing in uh, election polls. It also gives us a sense, though, of how things can change, as just a few months ago, Trump was in a better political position, and it's very possible for other news to really overtake the campaign and give voters different considerations on which they might make a different decision. So we still got a ways to go. Joe Biden would love the election to be held today, but it's not.
1: The reason I smiled, which I listeners can't see, is when Scott said if the election were held today, because most pollsters use language like that in their horse race questions. If the election were held today, would you vote for blank or blank in this case for Joe Biden, the Democrat, or Donald Trump, the Republican? And so I think that's an important, kind of ties everything together about election polling. Question wording matters. There, It's a snapshot in time and people's opinions
0: so given all of this, how influential do you expect polling to be as we head toward November?
2: I think people have a lot of skepticism of the accuracy of polls after 2016. Some of it's warranted, some of it's misunderstood. But many people were surprised by Trump's election. They felt jilted by forecasts that showed Hillary Clinton with a high chance of winning. And so we see a lot of skepticism of polling. And I think that's actually healthy. I think people ought to uh, make their decisions about who they support and what they do based on what they think. And uh, polls are a way for us to understand what voters are doing. But I'm sort of comfortable with the idea that people have a healthy skepticism of what's going on. And I'm really not sure that polls are going to have a major influence on people this time around.
1: I don't think polls exist in order to be influential. We exist to hold a mirror up to the population and to understand what people are thinking and sometimes even why they think that. A lot of us talk to our friends and family about what they think about things. And that gives us a skewed perspective of what's going on in the world since we're pretty self-selecting, even if we can't choose our family members. So having an idea of what a percentage of a random sample of Americans throughout the country think is an extremely valuable tool for understanding beyond our small bubbles and those around us. Emily, Scott, thank you both so
0: much. Thank you. Thank you. Did you like this episode about polling? If you somewhat agree, agree, or strongly agree, please share this episode with at least one other person that you think will like it too. And thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.